This is CliffCentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. You are live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. As usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be with you for the next hour. I'm joined with my comrade, the one, the only, Greg Nicholson. I'm a comrade now. I wasn't sure if I was a fighter or a Democrat. I mean, I've got to introduce you every week, so I've got to come up with new stuff to say every now and then, right? Man, that was a Dr. Dre song. It actually reminded me of Straight Out of Compton. And I think you recommended that movie for me. I did. And I did, did you think it was Oscar worthy? Well, it's been nominated for one Oscar, I think, Best Screenplay, but I, I would have, I'm surprised they didn't get a few more nominations. I thought it was a great movie, but, you know, we've seen the whole controversy with the, the sort of, uh, black actors and, and directors being, being neglected in the nominations. I don't know. For me, it's a powerful story, but I, honestly, I, I don't know if it's a great movie in terms of how movies are made and the art of storytelling. Mm. It's just a powerful story. It's a very good bio, but like biopic though. Yeah. And I think I'm a hip hop fan, so I think I'm just a bit, you know, biased. Mm. I think, yeah, if you have an interest, I think it's hard. <laughs> you always think it's cool. That's the thing. It could have been about whatever, but I would always think it's cool. Mm. Anyway, we, I think we actually have a show to do now. Really? Yep. What's lined up? We first will be talking all things continental. So we'll be talking to Simon Allison, our guru of all things Africa. We'll be touching on a bunch of things, including Burundi, uh, some of the terrorism we've been seeing out of Burkina Faso, um, and a lot of presidents seeking third terms. So Paul, Kaba- Paul Kagame, Joseph Kabila, and, and just what's going on there. Um, next, we'll be going local and talking to Ranjani Munusami, who was at uh, DA leader uh, Musi Maimane's speech this morning, um, just to tell us what happened there. And next, we'll be also talking about Tabombeki's weekly letters and whether he's trying to sort of rewrite his own legacy by force. And first, we'll go to Simon Allison, who I think is on the on the line with us straight from Pretoria. Um, Duncan, if you'll just get that for us. Um, Greg, you were reading the UN Human Rights Chief Statement, and he had some pretty scathing words for what's going on in Burundi. Yeah, it's actually quite hectic. Um, the UN, UN Human Rights Chief, I think it was last Friday, he had a statement out that, you know, sort of warned of some really dire stuff. He warned that there'll be a complete breakdown of law and order, um, could be just around the corner. Of course, we know in Burundi, uh, the, the really damaging civil war ended in only 2005. Um, the UN Human Rights Chief is examining allegations of gang rapes, uh, enforced disappearances, um, the digging of mass graves, uh, sort of in, uh, in this period of violence since, since last August. I mean, sorry, last April. Absolutely. I mean, finally we've got on the line the guru of all things Africa, the oracle, Simon Allison. Can you hear us? Every time I speak to you, you come up with another outrageous title for me. They're all untrue. <laughs> Good to hear your voice, man. Simon, we're actually just talking about Burundi, and Greg was reading about, was just reading the UN Human Rights Chief statement last Friday, and some really, really harsh words, talking about just a complete breakdown in what's going on in, in Burundi. And I wish you could just give us some background. I think we talked about it, I think, last April, um, but haven't gone back to it since. So I think I, was, I would love if you could just give us like a chronicle of of how we got how we got where we are um it's a long and complicated <laughs> story as these things always are yeah but you know the most recent um sort of catalyst for the tensions we've seen is that president pierre in Kurunziza decided he wanted a third term in office now he'd already had two and um, he was not allowed to have a third under the, the terms of the Constitution, mm. the terms of the Arusha Agreement, which ended a long-running civil war in Burundi. Mm. Um, 
although it was something of a grey area. And, of course, his constitutional court, under huge political pressure, ruled that actually the constitution could be interpreted to say maybe he can have a third term, and that's what he went with. But the incredible irresponsibility of this decision was that he went ahead with this knowing full well that it would cause um, huge tension in his country, that it would cause conflict, that he would have to crack down on protests, that it would cause a, a, a refugee crisis. And all of those things have happened, and um, President Nkurunziza doesn't really seem to give a damn. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, I love that you mentioned the 2005 civil war, and I, I can't help but wonder, is, is this sliding back into that kind of ethnic tension that, that where the civil war was sort of based on, or is this more of the state versus everybody else? There have been a lot of warnings about another genocide in Burundi. And almost, you know, every second article that I read about Burundi um, starts with the claim, you know, starts with the parallels Mm. with the Rwandan genocide. And, you know, there are parallels to be drawn. These are two small countries. They both have um, a sort of a Hutu and Tutsi ethnicities um, with with a long history of of tensions between them, etc., etc. But it's pretty lazy journalism actually, because Burundi today is a very different place to Rwanda 21 years ago. I don't think that we're going to see the same sort of targeted persecution of an entire ethnicity as we did in Rwanda. And a couple of things support this fact. Mm. Most importantly is that um, there are Tutsis and Hutus on both sides of the divide in Burundi, on Mm. the opposition and on the government, and in senior leadership positions in both so, so really, we're not seeing a, a sort of one ethnicity dominate everything. However, um, a caveat to that is wherever there is extreme violence, um, often people look for the most obvious dividing line um, in order to just sort of find their targets. You know, in, in countries where there are different races, mm. you often see that dividing line is racial. In countries where there are different ethnicities, that dividing line can become ethnic. So, so the, the more violent Burundi becomes, the more likely it is that the violence will have ethnic overtones. Mm. I hear you. And I, I mean, thanks for calling out that some people are just being lazy because I saw a lot of that, especially over December. I think a lot, I saw a lot on social media. It was just like, oh, it's sliding back into genocide and it's going to be a, a mess. So I'm glad that you put people in their place. Sorry, Greg. Simon, I was wondering one thing about, so, so Burundi's civil war uh, ended fairly recently and, you know, uh, Obviously, there were soldiers, and I think there were child soldiers used in 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 that war. Um, were were these sort of veterans, the, these soldiers? Were did the state and international players do enough to help demilitarize them and give them other opportunities that could that could sort of lead away or lead to a more peaceful future? It's a great question, Greg, um, and I don't know the full answer to it, but I do know there was quite intensive um, efforts to demilitarize. Mm. Um, and to integrate fighters into a new Burundian army. And I think that what we're seeing now is, is that, you know, well, there was, there was an attempted coup um, in mid-2015, you know, so before Pierre Nkurunziza's re-election, but after he had announced that he wanted to stand, there was an attempted coup by members of the military. And I think that was those sort of elements of the opposition within the military mm. um, trying to unseat him. But the fact remains, and it's a 
was a great point you raised, that, that there is a very recent um, generation of people who have fought before, they know how to fight, um, and who the, the, the sort of fighting lifestyle is, is, is an easy option, in a way. I mean, just as you talk, I'm just trying to think what, you know, what needs to happen for this to be resolved. I think Burundi have denied AU peacekeepers. So, I mean, Simon, what do you think? What can the international community do? What, what, what needs to happen locally and sort of internationally for us to sort of get back to some kind of stability in Burundi? It's tough. Um, we always speak about the international community yeah. like there is something they can do. You know, um, we always are like, well, we, you know, well, the international community, they must do something. Um, and that implies that there is a solution. And I don't think that there always is. Like, Burundi has been a great example of that, where very early on, the international community has been very firm in condemning Pierre and Corinne mm. Um They have been very firm in, in expressing their displeasure, but they perhaps missed opportunities in the beginning to be more forceful, to immediately perhaps um, put in sanctions, to send in military observers and troops much earlier on when Nkorunziza may have been willing to take them. Now the situation has progressed so far that um, we've kind of missed that boat. And I think that uh, diplomats across the continent and in international capitals across the world are sitting scratching their heads and they're like, well, actually, we don't know what to do now. There is one school of thought that says mm. that, you know, there is a UN peacekeeping mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo mm. in the East. South African troops are part of that mission. There's one school of thought that says maybe we should take those troops and just send them across the border into Burundi because they're already there. They know the terrain. Um, but there's no guarantee that that is a solution. You know, so sending a, a military invasion force, essentially, because the government is hostile, so that's what it would be. Um, into another country, it could just exacerbate tensions and make things worse. So I think at the moment, the international community is playing a very delicate balancing act, and their best bet is to try and keep Pierre and Kuranziza in check and to try and keep him mm. sort of in the fold to moderate his actions that way. I mean, there you have it. I suppose it's something we continue to watch, and I just hope, you know, Kuranziza has a change of heart one of these days. Um, I mean, on the topic of presidents who, you know, want to stick around a bit longer. Simon, I'd like to talk to you about Paul Kagame, uh, someone you've written about, you know, fairly recently. There was a constitutional amendment in Rwanda allowing, you know, a sitting president to sit for more than two terms. And he announced in December that he would run for a third term. There was a bit of backlash from this, our friends, the international community about this. Now, you've written that, you know, the, the focus of the Rwandese government is actually not on democracy, but more on stability and development. Could you tell us a bit about that? Look, the Paul Kagame question is a fascinating one. Yep. Because what he has done, essentially, is he has said, you know what, I'm going to let my record speak for itself. Mm. Um, I'm going to deliver economic growth and development to the people of Rwanda. And in return, I'm going to rule them very firmly, and I'm going to deny opposition politics, and I'm going to deny freedom of speech, and I'm going to deny freedom of assembly, because I don't think that economic growth and um, general respect for human rights go hand in hand. Um, he's sort of saying you can't have one, you, you can't have everything at the same time, you know, so he's saying I'm going to give socioeconomic rights mm. first, and then I'll give political and civil rights. Um, and so when it came to the question of a third term, 
from our Western perspective of um, democracy building, of course this is a, a, a big backward step because he's essentially saying, look, no more democracy. We're going to have another sham election where basically everyone's told well, who to vote for mm. and um, I'm going to have a bit more time in charge because my project's not finished yet. Um, is it a good idea? Well, given the status quo, probably yes. Given the fact that Kagame has not prepared a successor, probably the best recipe for stability and peace in Rwanda is more Kagame. But the fact that he has not pre- he has not prepped a successor, yeah. he does not have a succession plan. That fact alone is a huge indictment of his leadership, um, and I think that's really what we should be focusing on. And basically, it, the the challenge we should be giving Paul Kagame now. Um, he is okay, you know, I see what you're saying, um, but now deliver. Now you have another term, or another mm-hmm. two terms. You need to deliver civil and political rights as well as socioeconomic rights because you've had the time now. Um, and to try and encourage him to do that, the danger with um, the sort of strong condemnations that we've been seeing and the distancing from the Rwandan government that we're seeing from Western government mm-hmm is that that sort of forces Kagame's back against the wall. Again, it's, it's, it's diplomacy. I, I don't know that there's a right or wrong way to do it. Um, but the fact is we have to deal with the man in charge, and we have to try and get the best results from that person, even if it's not the ideal situation for Rwanda. Yeah, I think the big fear is that he'll just, we'll just never leave, that he'll just stick around. And they'll be like, okay, it's a fourth term, it's a fifth term, constitutional amendment. And if there's no opposition, of no valid opposition, then who's to stop him? I think that's the big fear. Exactly. I, I imagine um, that, 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 that journalists and, and analysts were having these exact same conversations yeah. about Robert Mugabe <laughs> in the late 80s, early 90s. Jeez. Yeah, that, that's where, right. yeah, that, that, that worked out know, well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, 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 that's, and that's the danger. Um, Having said that, there are a lot of Western countries yep. that have a pretty proud tradition of, of, of presidents that stay in charge for a long time. Mm. Look at uh, Angela Merkel. She's probably the most effective president of a leading Western country. Yeah. And she's on her third term, and there's a decent chance she's going to run for a fourth term because that's how they've set up their country. Mm. Um, the USA, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, one of the most famous presidents of all time, he had four terms, I think. I didn't before know that. They Okay. He did. It was actually one of his political opponents, I, I believe. Um, just after he, so he, one of the guys who succeeded FDR said, "Oh, we don't want, we don't want to give people like FDR another." No, he had waited for too long. He's like, "That's we, enough." You know, we, we need to keep enough uh, enough of the pie for the rest of us. Um, but 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 the, what I'm trying to say is, this idea of a two-term limit yeah. is a very artificial construct. Mm. It, there's no like golden rule that two terms yeah. is yeah. the magic number. Um, yes, it makes sense for some countries in in in, in certain situations, but um, perhaps it doesn't make sense for Rwanda at the moment. And that's what I'm hoping. I'm I'm I'm, I'm sort of consciously choosing to look on the bright side at the moment because there's there's so many less. Um, you know, there's so many situations on the continent to be pessimistic about at the moment that we, I don't know. Sometimes you just just need to believe. Um, that things might be better than they look on the surface. There we go. I mean, journalists are usually pessimistic and you know cynical until that's why I call you the guru, man. You always surprise us. 
Simon, quickly to change notes. I know you're blushing now. Is to talk a bit about Burkina Faso. Um, last Friday, we had a terrorist attack in, in, you know, in Ouagadougou. And, I mean, for me, I think that just that came out of nowhere, at least for me. So I'm curious, you know, just to hear from you just where that came from. We've had a bit of, not a bit, but quite a lot of political instability in Burkina Faso for the past two years. And now this. So I'm just like, how does it all, you know, fit in? Absolutely. It came out of the blue for pretty much everyone, I think, including the people of Burkina Faso, because they have no history of serious terrorist attacks. Mm. They haven't hosted, you know, these radical Islamist groups. This is not really their fight. Um, And then suddenly there are masked gunmen in the center of Ouagadougou opening fire on restaurants and hotels, Mm. killing 28 people, mostly foreigners. Um, and so I said, Burkina Faso woke up that, that Saturday morning, I think it was, or Sunday morning. Um, I said, what, what on earth happened? Why um, is Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb targeting Burkina Faso? What did we do wrong? And, uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about it because there isn't an obvious answer. Um, one answer is that Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, yeah. who claimed responsibility for, this, for the attack, they're expanding their theater of operations, they're trying mm-hmm. to make waves, they're trying to show that they are they're still a force to be reckoned with. And the reason they're doing that is because they're sort of locked into um, a bitter fight for the jihadist space mm-hmm. with um, the Islamic State, who has been making um, big inroads in that part of the world yeah. as well. Um, so, so Akim is, is fighting for relevance. So this was a, you know, to, to go to a brand new country shows a level of sophistication that indicates you know, look, we're still alive and well and can cause damage. That, that's one aspect of it. The um, second is that Burkina Faso is hosting um, a French military base with soldiers that are part of a regional anti-terrorism task force. So in that way, perhaps they made themselves a target by agreeing to host those French troops with that particular mandate. But the third, the third reason why I think Burkina Faso was targeted, and I think this is actually the most important reason is that if you look at Burkina Faso's recent history, so they have had an incredibly tumultuous 15 months, yeah. but it's also been amazing, you know. Um, okay, this I want to hear, this I want to hear, because we've, we've had a revolution, a coup, I think we had another coup, and then we had elections. So I really want to hear, exactly. you, you know, know your glass half full of this one. Burkina Faso, um, so sorry to Blaise Compaore, Burkina Faso's former president, mm-hmm. he tried to do a Pierre in Kurunziza or a Paul Kagame. He tried to stay on longer than his constitutionally mandated term. Yeah. And the people of Burkina Faso went into the streets in the hundreds of thousands and said, no, um, we will not allow this. And that, that intense, incredibly powerful popular pressure forced Blaise Compaore into exile. He had to flee. Um, uh, Basically, the, Burkina, the people of Burkina Faso stood up and demanded their right to self-determination. Um, they put in an interim government um, and planned new elections. Mm. And then halfway through that process, um, one of the former president's friends, a, a high-ranking general, he then took over. He, he went and then he imprisoned the interim government and he took power. Basically saying, ah, oh, you know what, we, we forget about this democracy thing that, yeah. that you've got going on. Um, we're going to go back to business as usual with myself in charge now. Mm. Um, and once again, the people of Burkina Faso <laughs> went out in the streets 
And they said, no, this is not happening. Yeah. Um, and enough of the, the army was with the people um, that this, 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 this general was not able to get the military support he needed to make his coup stick. So he got unseated as well. Um, and he is currently in prison awaiting wow. trial, I believe. Um, and then they had to delay the elections a little bit, but then they had new elections, and they elected a new president. Um, so I really think it's a, you know, it, it, but what Burkina Faso is, is a wonderful example of how to achieve radical change. So for citizens of all African countries who are sitting looking at a party that's been in power too long or a president who won't give up, um, Burkina Faso has said has shown, look, there is a way you can do this. Um, and, and, and the thing about these demonstrations is they were incredibly peaceful. Um, people did die, but we're talking dozens rather than hundreds. You know, a, a very small number of, of casualties relating to the, to the, you know, what has been achieved. Um, so this is the example that Burkina Faso has set. Now, if you are Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, and you are trying to tell people in your propaganda that there is only one way to achieve radical change, mm -hmm. that there is only one way to fight against the regime, and that is through radical, violent Islam um, of the brand that they... Um, like to propagate, which, as we all know, is, is, is has very little do very little to do with um, Islam generally. Actually, but this is what they're trying to say. Yeah. They're trying to say that we are the only way to change, and this the violence that we are perpetrating is the only way to achieve real change. Um, and so, Burkina Faso is a sort of living, breathing, recent counterexample to this narrative. So it's kind of a, an existential threat to Al-Qaeda's ideology, to the Islamic State's ideology, and they need to make sure that Burkina Faso fails. Because if Burkina Faso succeeds, well then I think, uh, think Al-Qaeda and Islamic State's days are numbered in the region, because it's clearly a much, much better model for change. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I <laughs> you got me. I was quite skeptical when we started this, and I'm like, you know, when you put it that way, it sounds incredible. It sounds like, like that's what you know, true democracy actually looks like. It's just voting with your feet and saying, you know what, enough is enough. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm really sad now to hear about the terrorism uh, that struck there last Friday because it feels like you know a country that's on the cusp of something. So. Um, What's the word? Exciting. This exciting feeling of what happens when people, you know, dictate their own lives and their own futures. And then there's, you know, Al-Qaeda in the mix just to make things more complicated. Anyway, that's my uh, Absolutely. That's my we monologue. live in exciting yeah. times. <laughs> that's my monologue. Okay. And on the topic of, you know, confusing, you know, political moves, um, Simon, why are ex-Guantanamo Bay um, prisoners being sent to Ghana? It is, it is a bizarre story, isn't it? You know, two Yemenis picked up in Afghanistan and then uh, delivered to Accra with a 14-year stopover in Guantanamo Bay. Um, Guantanamo Bay has always been a problem for Barack Obama yeah. in particular because he has wanted to close Guantanamo Bay since, you know, he, he was promising it since the, his first election campaign. Yeah, that was really high on his, like, you know, this is why you should vote Exactly. He hasn't been able to. Um, and the main reason he hasn't been able to is because he faces unanswered question of what do you mm. do with the people who are in Guantanamo Bay? Remember, very few of them have been charged or tried or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I think these two weren't, um, weren't ever formally charged, yeah. Exactly. But 
they, you know, most of them have a background in um, radical Islamist movement, mm-hmm. be it peaceful or violent. Um, and the, the fear is, so you know, if you pick up someone from a battlefield in Afghanistan, and then you put them in an American jail for 14 years, then you send them back to Afghanistan, chances are he might then, you know, want to fight back against America because he has been so badly. <laughs> now he's got a reason to, even if he wasn't yeah. before, now he's got a reason to bomb you now. Right? Even if he didn't yeah. have a beast before, he's yeah. got a beast now. Yeah. Um, so what do you do with these people? So it, 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 Politically, it wasn't an option to send most of them back to their countries of origin. Mm-hmm. So they had to find other countries to send them. But who's going to, you know, what country is going to take on the risk of someone that America thinks is a terrorist? even if that person hasn't been tried. So really, finding, finding places for these people to go has been a very, very difficult mission. Now Obama is nearly out of time because he, I mean, his, his term expires, what, January next year, yeah. the year after? Yeah. And um, he's trying to, he's basically pushing hard to close Guantanamo Bay. And although we don't know the details, mm. him, or the U.S. and the government of Ghana have reached some kind of deal to rehouse to prisoners. And these guys are Yemenis that were fighting in Afghanistan for the Taliban, and they were picked up in 2002, shortly after the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, and they spent the last 14 years in Guantanamo Bay, and now they land in Accra. Um, and in a way, it's not much better. You know, the is a lot bigger than Guantanamo Bay, obviously, and they'll have a lot more freedom, yeah. but they're still not free to go home. They, you know, they are still not being treated as innocent men, which they should be, because there has been no due process of law. So there are still problems with the solution. But um, the fact is, then there are now, you know, two Guantanamo Bay inmates in Accra, and they're, they're sort of going on public radio and insisting that they come in peace and they do not want to cause any trouble. But there is a lot of skepticism, and it has not been a decision that has been welcomed by the Ghanaian public. Um, uh, many prominent organizations, in particular um, Christian church organizations, mm. have said this is a, you know, this is a disgrace, it's, it's far too dangerous to let um, suspected terrorists into the country, and um, they're sort of using it as a stick with which to beat President uh, John Dramani Mahama. Cool, I think he has up. elections this year, right? He, he does have elections this year, so it's a very dangerous move for him. And I wonder what incentive he was offered by the United States to make this happen because there's no immediate uh, or there's no obvious political win for him in this. I mean, it's a tricky one. I suppose you've got to, you know, you know, I think um, up to a hundred uh, terrorists either charged or convicted or otherwise, and you have to do something with them now. So Obama's got something to, to figure out. You can't take them home. I imagine he won't keep them in the U.S. So, you know, <laughs> we might have some in South Africa soon going by that. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be having any on our shows anytime soon. Uh, President Zuma has enough problems to deal with. <laughs> yeah, actually, Greg's one of Greg's pictures was used in the Zuma Must Fall video. So that, that was a bit of a highlight this morning. I don't know if it was a music video, a little song. That was a, probably the worst. I saw someone comment on social media that's the worst thing that they think Zuma's ever done for us. And yeah, there, there my picture was <laughs> used from one of the protests. <laughs> anyway, Simon... <laughs> Thanks for having us, man. It's one that you've been on for a while. I know you're waiting for your passport to add this. No, your passport, your visa, sorry. So we'll let you get to it.
Great. Thanks, Kingsley, okay. and I'll, I'll be in touch from Addison. Fan- fantastic. We'll see you soon. Greg, we're just about to go into a short break, so I'll let you do your thing. For everybody listening in, remember you can call us on 0861-555-189. You can tweet us on at DMShowsAde. It's always great hearing your comments there. And we'll be back talking all things local with Ranjani Munasami. See you after the break. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon, you're back with us for the second half of the Daily Mavic Show on cliffcentral.com. Loving the tweets on at DM shows that day. We're just jumping into the sort of last portion on this. Greg, quick question before the next segment. If our boss Gareth Cliff wins his 25 million rand settlement, do you think we get any of that? Well, we can only hope. That's it. You heard it here, man. Live from the, from the not horse's <laughs> mouth at all. Not at all. <laughs> now to more serious news. We'll be talking to Ranjani Munusami, who was attending a DA party leader, Musi Maimane's speech this morning. Ranjani, can you hear us? Yes, hi there. Fantastic, fantastic. Ranjani, this year has really kicked off with a, with a lot of debates about identity and race in South Africa. And we saw the different outbursts um, on social media from Penny Sparrow and, and others. And, <laughs> and, Obviously, Musi Maimani's speech today at the Apartheid Museum about um, race, and, uh, specifically on race and identity, comes at quite an important time. Can you tell us about it? Uh, how was it? Well, it was pitched as a landmark um, moment uh, where he delivered his big speech on, uh, on race and identity. Now, apparently he was wanting to do this at the end of last year, and the DA decided to put it off. So, um, you know, it's... In the in the context of this explosion of uh, racial incidents, and um, uh, I think uh, the the issue of racism has been pushed up on the national agenda. So he thought that this was an opportune moment. Unfortunately for him, this was also the morning that uh, that Twitter went down. So the usual mm. conversations that you would have sabotage. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I saw that Mrs. My, my Mrs. My things are saying that oh, it's very convenient that the Twitter went down. Um, throughout the country, as a, uh, you know, at the time that the speech was going on. So I don't know if you think so, like David Mashlobo jammed multi signal or what went <laughs> on, but it seems that this was, this was, a, was, a, was a, a worldwide problem with, with Twitter. But, so, so what did he say? Uh, yes, that's what I'm getting to. Um, he, look, it's, um, you know, before the speech, people were, were, were saying that this is going to be a mess of a, of a, spe- uh, of a speech because the DA is in a difficult space when it comes to issues of race uh, because um, a large part of its constituency remains white uh, and uh, that in trying to grow its its base, it still has to uh, look after its core constituency. Um, and the, the other difficulty is that some leaders of the, the Democratic Alliance, like Diane Kolobarnard, and members like Penny Sparrow, uh, were caught out um, in in these incidents that that uh, cast a shadow off the, over the party as well. So it is a difficult issue for them to navigate. So what he was saying, look, you know, he was being uh, vintage Musi, you know, trying to be romantic about the issue uh, and uh, and about the country. He started off talking about how um, you know we, we, we were all like in this marriage. And our constitution was the anti-natural agreement, and we're supposed to grow old together. Uh, and then, you know, it all fell apart. And yeah, so you know, he used this analogy of this of this marriage that went horribly wrong. Um, but uh, I think 
in somewhere in the middle of the speech, you know, when he, um, uh, you know, he he walked through his um, his his analogy and um, uh, his his Obama style delivery. Somewhere in the middle, I think he got to the core of the matter, which is um, how is the DA going to grapple with his own constituency, and what what is his messaging going to be about race? So he made some quite bold statements. One of the things is is that um, he wants uh, DA members to sign an anti-racism pledge. Um, And I think the boldest statement out of the speech was that if you are a racist uh, and you're planning to vote DA, please don't vote back. Wow. Yeah, that was quite a strong message. And um, look, it looks... I mean, nobody's going to identify themselves as a racist, but it does um, throw the challenge out to the DA membership to identify themselves as not being racist. Mm, and it also that means that they have to change their orientation, their outlook, the things they say and the things they do. Mm. Um, and he um, was saying that people who act contrary to this pledge will be immediately thrown out of the party. Mm-hmm. And also by saying that, by calling on all DA members to to, to sign up that they're not racist or, or don't vote DA if you are mm. a racist, also I guess opens the DA up for the bigger prize, which is which is the majority vote, which is what they really need. Yes, and looking uh, as I say, it is a difficult issue because there has been this debate, for example, on social media about whether black people can be racist. Um, and of, uh, uh, the public protector, Chili Madoncela, actually got in on this debate where she said she believes that black people can be racist. Even if you are a victim of systemic racism, you can be prejudiced towards other people. But some people perceive that as being different things, that racism and prejudice, prejudice is, is different um, and that racism is a, is a worse form of, of prejudice. So he um, said that he agreed with um, uh, Advocate Madoncella that he believed that, that black people can be also be racist towards um, to, uh, other black people and towards uh, white people. So um, you know, and but but he, he he also did use the word word prejudice. But what he has done now, he said, is that he's going to introduce a kind of national dialogue uh, over the next few weeks. So he said people are sick and tired of politicians telling people what to think. So he wants to open up this, this this dialogue and get people to talk. So I suppose issues like that, whether black people can be racist and the extent to which racism is prevalent in our society would be aired through this, this dialogue. And that's quite a shift for the Democratic Alliance because... It, it it sort of carries this baggage that it's uh, it's a white party, uh, you know, um, and that it represents white interests. And many of its voters from the last elections, most of them were were white, according to the DA's own statistics, if I'm not um, incorrect. But do you think the party can lead such discussion, given that given that sort of baggage? Well, the thing is that there is a gap at the moment because there's nobody who's taking leadership on this racism issue. Um, you haven't really seen uh, from the ANC side or from government there been anything kind of proactive to lead this debate. And I think this is why it's going, been going all haywire and there's no direction to it. And, um, you know, people are, are feeling the weight of, the, of this issue. So what he is doing is he's recognized that there is a gap. Whether he's the right person to, to lead this, this discussion, this national dialogue, is um, is something that's open to... To debate and um, 
depending on where you stand in society. But the thing is that he's saying, I think this is an acknowledgement that the DA itself does have a problem. Um, and that is why he's, he's putting out all these processes that he's saying uh, that there must be this anti-racism pledge. He's saying there must be act- active recruitment and training of black public representatives um, so that the complexion of the DA changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's saying that there they need uh, to be discussions on policy, uh, on on the, on on you know on how a society can change fundamentally to better reflect the demogra- demographics and and so that the interests of um, of the majority of the people are served um, by 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 policy. And then also the, you know this this national di- dialogue which he's calling stand up and speak out. Um, so whether that will lead anywhere, whether, uh, for example, the ANC will recognize this as a valid discussion, which they too need to be to participate in, that remains to be seen. At the moment, the ANC remains, you know, trading on its struggle credentials that that it is in the best position to reflect um, uh, racial div- or, or lead a discussion on racial diversity, but it's not doing that. Um, so I think he's taking he's taking the gap and. Uh, uh, I, I, it, 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 it remains to be seen how people respond to this. Mm. And one of the big stories in the news in the last few days was on Saturday, um, Black Like Me founder, uh, entrepreneur, businessman Herman Mashaba was named the DA's uh, mayoral candidate for Johannesburg. And one of the key issues that people have been talking about is his his comments that he would repeal any laws which specifically classify South Africans in, in their race groups. And, and obviously that that sort of refers, and he mentions um, black economic empowerment laws. Um, he's taken a lot of flack over that for the, for the last few days, and also what people sort of view as confusion over his identity or his his um, desire to be seen as a human being, um, and not necessarily a black South African or a black human being. Did the figure and the story of Herman Mashaba sort of hang over Musi Maimani's event today? Well, it didn't hang over, but it was a question that needed to be asked. And uh, unfortunately, he um, they, they announced after the speech that he won't be engaging in, with the media as they, uh, they had initially said that he would, because that would have been a question to ask, because there is a contradiction between what he's saying and what Hamid Mashaba said. Um, uh, um, uh, Muti Maimani did say that, um, that black economic empowerment needed to stay, but it needed to serve the majority of the of people and particularly the poor and it shouldn't just be for the politically connected uh, but that's not what Herbert Mashaba is saying um, and he um, at the outset you know when he started his speech he, he uh, mostly identified him, himself as a black South African mm, I see I've got the speech in front of me his first yeah. line is I stand before you as a child of Soweto a yes. proudly black South African a son of the African soil yes exactly so he's He's very much owning that identity, whereas Mashaba seems to be doing uh, uh, the, the quite the opposite by saying that there shouldn't be any kind of classification or race identity uh, and that we should effectively be colorless. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central, and we're speaking to Daily Maverick Associate Editor Ranjani Munasami. Um, also, Kingsley, you want to jump yeah, in? Yeah, I'm going to jump in while we have Ranjani here. Ranjani, something I've been quite fascinated by is... 
his former president Tambo Tabombeki's like sort of letters that he's been writing. And I'm curious if you know what do you think about them and whether he's trying to sort of rewrite his legacy sort of by force. I, I wanna know, is is this just the ranting of of an old man with a grudge, or is he talking about serious issues? Uh, I've been absolutely fascinated with it. The first that he decided to write because um, there have been so many people who have been draw- trying to draw him out since he left office and he's refused to engage in domestic issues. And all of a sudden, there's this announcement that he'll be writing a weekly letter. And the first two have been somewhat bizarre. Um, you know, Tamam uh, Becky has had a very, or has a very contested legacy. And he see. You, you know, we'll remember him as a successor of Nelson Mandela, uh, as, as, a, as a person who basically, uh, got South Africa on its feet, but, uh, and, 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 and gave us a place in the international community, you know, with his, um, with his dreams for, for, uh, for, uh, the, for NEPAD and for South Africa playing an important role in multilateral organizations and all of that. But on the other hand, history will also remember him, always remember him in, uh, in association with the AIDS controversy mm. uh, and with the factional battles uh, in, in the country, in the ANC, and the use of, uh, of the state machinery in fighting these factional battles. So, um, you know, it's, um, I think a lot of people have been fascinated that he's, he's now opening up that kind of worm and what he's going to say about it. But I must say, the first two letters have have been, uh, I, I don't know, it, it, it's kind of been revealing about the place he is in. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that is a very healthy space. Um, he's obviously extremely bitter and angry about how people and how history documents his presidency. Um, and the, the first issue that he raised in his first letter was the plot allegations against uh, Sir Ramaphosa, Toki Sekhala, and uh, Matthew Sposa. Um And uh, it, I, I was kind of, when I saw, I mean, when I started reading that letter and I, I saw what it was about, I expected him to kind of reveal the full context and uh, what it was, what happened. Mm. But unfortunately, you know, he just, he was selective about what he wrote about. And uh, I think it's that that episode is so extremely unfair to the three people who were falsely accused of plotting against him. But he doesn't seem to acknowledge that. You know, he wants to exonerate himself and wash his hands after, after episode. And unfortunately, he puts the blame on a person who can't defend himself because he's passed on, and that's the former Minister of Safety and Security, Steve Schwerter. So, you know, that, uh, I think that there were a few people who, who contested the, the first letter, and I, I kind of hoped that the second one would have been more thorough. But... But it's not. Again, it's selective about uh, uh, in uh, a time uh, that's like 14 years ago. This is the letter it's, referring to Jeremy Cronin. It, it's partly refers to Jeremy Cronin, but it refers to um, perceptions in the NEC that he uh, that the, the president didn't allow open debate. Uh, that there was a kind of zonification of the, the zonification term comes from Jeremy Cronin. But that there were, you know, that there wasn't um, an atmosphere conducive to healthy discussion and debate, uh, and that this perception existed in the media. And he basically cites one person, Sello Mandoto, who was the former premier of Limpopo, to say that, uh, you know, he, when he became a member, he said, oh, but, you know, everything is so cool and 
uh, everybody can talk about what they want. So I don't know where this perception comes from. So, you know, it's quite bizarre that there has been this uh, this prevalent perception uh, in, this, in this senior leadership of the ANC about the way he used to operate, and that's from people who sat in meetings for him. But he chooses to cite what one person said out of an 18-member committee to, you know, to, to, to basically defend himself from the charge that he was paranoid and that he didn't allow open debate. So, I mean, I, you know, I, um, he, he is kind of a tragic character in South African history. Um, and he's, he kind, he's kind, of, kind of looking for ways uh, to, to, to better project his, his presidency and his legacy. But, you know, we all have perceptions of ourselves. If somebody told me I would, I'd look better as a blonde, for example, you know, I wouldn't use that as as the definitive take on how I look. <laughs> you know? I wanted to see where you were going with that. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, for, for him to rely on what one person said that he's not dictatorial doesn't mean that everybody else doesn't think so. I mean, even this morning I was getting calls from people who were saying, but we used to sit in those meetings. He used to shut us down. Like, he'd come in at the end of a meeting and uh, invalidate everything we've said. So it's very dangerous territory for him to enter this and think that people wouldn't challenge him. Mm. And and the bizarre effect of of his his newsletters or, or whatever we're calling them um, so far is that while he's trying to fight the perception that he's you know paranoid and and had closed debate and whatnot, it seems that he's only added to that fuel. This morning, Jeremy Cronin, who, who I should mention is a deputy general secretary of the Communist Party was all over different radio stations with, with being able to air his views quite openly. And, and he made, I think he made things sound worse for Tabo and Becky. And because the former president opened up that, this conversation and quite selectively, it's had, it's had the opposite of effect, opposite effect, I think, of what he was intending. Yes. But that's what I, I said initially also when I, when I read the first letter is that it doesn't exonerate him. In fact, it gives more credence to the perceptions about him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in both the letters we've we, we seen so far that, the, you know, the, the people, uh, you know, in the first letter uh, he was referring to the plot, uh, and uh, so Sir Ramaphosa, Tokyo Sekhwale, and Mattis Posa, and in this instance Jeremy Cronin, all of them were treated very badly at the time. Uh, you know, the, the, the first three basically were accused of treason. They were, plot, they were accused of plotting to harm the president, not only to, you know, to take over the presidency. So, I mean, that, that is treasonous. You can go to jail for a, a, a very long time. And, uh, you know, those people are, are prominent members of society, not only of ANC. So for them to be accused of something so heinous, you know, and for the president, uh, for former president to write about it now and still not, uh, you know, in any way acknowledge the pain that they went through at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Jeremy Cronin's incident, uh, um, uh, instance, uh, the, the the accusations against him opened him to all manner of attacks about his race. I remember Dimsani Makai, who was a KwaZulu-Natal leader, called him a white messiah um, and a snake in the grass. And, um, you know, it was it was very hurtful for him as well. Um, but I, I don't think that the former president acknowledges that kind of, uh, that, you know, impact on other people. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's very much, you know, it's a process of navel-gazing and looking at how he himself was perceived rather than, you know, the, the broader context. 
Ranjini, we're going to have to let you go in a minute. But finally, do you think there is space um, for the former president to engage in in public discussion? Um, we all know him as, a, as an incredible writer, an incredible um, speech maker. Even last week I went back and listened to his first uh, presidential inauguration speech. And you see that sort of incredible... Um, positive and sort of inspirational yeah, words brilliant. that are just absolutely brilliant. Um, is there still a space where he, we could sort of channel that Tabo and Becky or is that, is that long gone? No, I think there's a definite space for him. I think he has a wealth of knowledge. I think, you know, he's, uh, he has so much to give and, you know, unfortunately Sudan and you know, the other areas where I recall where he's been involved in, um, uh, peacemaking missions, uh, uh, negotiations, and mediation have the, have the benefit of his involvement, and I think we can definitely benefit from it. For example, you know, he is, um, the, 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 the pieces he's written, the speeches he's delivered on the issue of race and identity, for example, were so deep and really made you think about, about the state of our nation, uh, about how we relate to other South Africans. Um, and he has that ability to do that to provoke debate, even with these, with these, uh, um, uh, what Jeremy Cronin called um, misremembering uh, letters. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it still makes it provokes thought. Mm. Uh, it makes everybody think back and think deeply about issues. So he has that incredible ability to do so. And I really wish that he would would leave the past alone. You know, that 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 uh, that actually cast him in bad light and and look forward and. And, and write about the state of the, of the country and, and bigger issues. Well, he's promised more letters, so, we'll, so let's see what's in store. Ranjini, thanks so much. My pleasure. Take care, guys. Take care. That was Ranjini Munosami, Daily Maverick Associate Editor. Uh, thank you to Simon Allison, uh, Daily Maverick's Africa correspondent, my colleague Kingsley Kapuri in yeah, studio. Yeah, here. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. That's another week of the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Make sure you get the podcast and subscribe. Uh, hit us up on Twitter, which is at DMShowZA. We'll see you next week. Sorry, just before we go, quick shout out to Solomon for all the tweets, man. We love you and keep, you know, doing what you do. And to Bongile, one of our producers. This is CliffCentral.com.